Hey, y'all, welcome to Podakesis, a podcast about why what Christians believe matters. Uh, we are excited that you have joined us this week for this conversation. And um, I want to introduce to you on this first episode to two very good friends of mine, Jim and Alan, and let them tell a little bit about who they are and how they, uh, where they come from in this discussion. Alan. Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Alan Kaysen. I'm the pastor at Metter United Methodist Church in the big city of Metter, Georgia, um, where everything is supposedly better in Metter. Everything's better in Metter. Everything. everything. Um, so uh, I grew up as a preacher's kid, a pastor's mm-hmm. kid, a PK. And so I've grown up in the church my entire life, the Methodist church particularly in South Georgia. But then God called me while I was in uh, my first year at the University of Georgia. So God does exist at the U- University of Georgia. <laughs> um, <laughs> go dogs. <laughs> oh, uh, no. So, um, so God called me into the ministry uh, in my freshman year at Georgia, and I ended up going to Candler School of Theology where I got my master's of divinity and I have been in pastoral ministry in a couple of weeks will be six, 16 years. That's right. 16 okay. years. So I've served a, a four church, uh, charge. Uh, I've been an associate. I've had two churches as a solo pastor anyways. And, uh, I'm excited about joining, uh, these two guys to talk about, um, why right belief matters. Uh, I think it's going to be an awesome conversation as we dig into God's Word and um, why it matters, and especially in today's uh, society and culture. All right, Jim, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Excellent. So good to be with you guys. I love these guys, everybody. My name is Jim Morrow, and I am currently the pastor of the Glenville United Methodist Church in Glenville, Georgia, uh, home of the Sweet Onion right next to the Vidalia Onion. You know you love them. I have a slightly opposite story in that I did not grow up in a faith home and environment whatsoever and found faith when I was a teenager. I began accidentally going to church with some friends early on, and so I was able to get some background in a wonderful Baptist church in our community. And once my friend's grandma stopped taking us to Wendy's after, I stopped going to church. Long story short, I ended up walking into with a friend to a United Methodist Church when I was 16 years old, and I found there something that I didn't know that I had always needed. I come from um, a, an, a, a home that knows abandonment, and so my uh, biological father walked out of my life uh, when I was two years old, and it never really dawned on me that that left a mark on my life and what I was looking for and yearning for. And it was a a sermon about Abram and Sarah finding home in God instead of in a place of all things, an Old Testament sermon. Um, And the preacher, he looked out at the congregation. I don't know if y'all can do this. I haven't mastered this yet. When the preacher says something, but you feel like they're talking only to you. I don't, I don't, I'm going to have to master that one day. He said, uh, everyone needs a home. God is your home come home. And it was like the grace of God speaking into me, this is what you've always wanted, what you've always needed. And it was like a floodgate. And I just went all in for Jesus, obnoxiously at first, because I was convinced that I knew all right belief at that point and all right practice. But I just fell in love with Jesus and shortly after felt called into ministry. Super glad that um, Amanda, my wife. She was actually uh, a friend of mine at that time. She's been able to journey with me that whole time. So she not only nurtured me in the faith, she helps me remember things like to take out the garbage. So she's 
uh, just the best. So that's a little bit about me. I'll tell you the big story, the longer story another time. That's awesome. And uh, Alan, um, Jim was gracious enough to tell us a little bit about his wife. Uh, but we know that we know that you're married, but the people who are listening may not know, especially since you uh, left her out of your story. Oh, do, you no. want to, uh, do you want to rectify that? I didn't know we were talking about spouses. So uh, yes, I've been married to Kristen. <laughs> you should for- always... Always. I know. I know. I love you guys. Uh, so, uh, yeah, for 16 years, we got married in um, May of 04, and I started preaching June of 04. Wow. Yeah. So she has been with me uh, along the along this journey uh, as well, and we have three kids. That's awesome. I, I mentioned my kids. You didn't mention your kids, Jim. Who are y'all? Oh, we're going to play that competition, are Thank you. Boom. Boom. And boom. I remember their names. <laughs> He's got them written down. So anyway, um, interesting story about that. Um, Alan's dad in the United Methodist Church, we have bishops and we have district superintendents and district superintendents work as uh, the arm of the bishop in different districts. And uh, Alan's dad was at one time a district superintendent, and he was my DS um, the, uh, at the time that Alan was getting married. And I was meeting, I remember meeting with your dad, Alan. And your dad was just gleaming about that wedding, about what th- how things were going. In fact, I was meeting with him about ministry stuff, and we didn't talk about that at all. He talked all about you. And I had no clue who you were at the time. Yes. It's always Alan, Alan, and, Alan, and everywhere, we, everywhere go. we go. And now we're like best friends. So <laughs> there you go. So, um, uh, so that's Jim and Alan. Um, I'm Brett Maddox, of course, and I, I'm from South Georgia. I'm from Valdosta. I grew up there, went to school at Lowndes High School and college at Valdosta State University. Didn't leave Valdosta until I took my very first ministry job when I was um, just about 22 years old. Um, and uh, I did not, just like Jim, I did not grow up in a religious household. My parent, my mom, Um, My parents divorced when I was two, and um, I grew up in a very broken, shattered home, uh, very lots of abuse and drugs and alcohol and all kinds of stuff going on in that home life. Um, And I didn't know God whatsoever. I had a nagging aunt who um, was a volunteer youth minister at a local Methodist church in Lake Park, just outside of Valdosta, who would not leave me alone. Not she would just nag me and nag me and nag me to get me to come to church and finally to get her to shut up. I decided to go and uh, I never looked back. That was about thir- I was about thirteen years old when I started going. When I turned sixteen, I had a, a spectacular experience with the love of God at a, um, a walk to Emmaus event called Chrysalis, where I, 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 I and I'll tell this story later when we talk about the Holy Spirit and talk about the way God's grace moves. But um, I had this experience where I, I heard and I felt God say to me, I love you, which were the three words that I never heard anywhere. Um, I knew my parents loved me. I knew that, but it was just something I was lacking. And so hearing God say, I love you, I love you, I love you, changed my life. And so I answered the call into ministry shortly thereafter and have been pursuing that since I was 17 years old. Here I am 40 years old and I'm in my, uh, let's see, 16th or 17th year of pastoral ministry, um, 12 of those years at St. Luke United Methodist Church in Columbus, Georgia, where I'm an associate pastor. So one of the reasons I wanted us to tell our stories before we got into the actual meat of this podcast was because if you look at Alan and Jim and me, we're, we're not the trend. The trend for men our age is not going into the pastorate. Um, the trend for men our, men our age is to do anything else. Um, we look at 
statistics across the country um, and in the Western world. And people who are 40 and younger are either leaving the church, give nothing that they don't care about the church, men and women. And yet here we are, three of us who are kind of bucking the trend, if you will. And we, one of the reasons we are is because, one, we have experienced God's grace in our lives, but also we believe that what we believe matters. This is more than just a secondhand thing or a back burner weekend hobby of ours. This is life. This life of faith is life for us. And so we are excited to be able to come and to have these conversations with you. And we do want to invite you to join us on Podakesis each time we put out an episode and ways for, and we're going to look at ways for you to interact with us through Twitter and Facebook. We want to open this up for you to join us in a conversation about right belief, what it means to believe rightly the things of Jesus. But before we do that, let's talk superhero movies. Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) I love superhero movies love them. And what I love the most are the backstories, that the setup story, that that episode one or movie one or whatever, that comic book one. I like the backstories because I like to know where, for example, I like to know more about Bruce Banner than really the Hulk. I mean, the Hulk is awesome. Hulk smash. He does. And that's what he does. But man, every time Bruce Banner it's layers like donkey sells in Shrek. He's, he's like, he's like a parfait. He's, he's, he's like he's, an onion <laughs> <laughs> parfait, man. Parfait. Glenville um, onion. He, he's, he's layered and layered and layer and, and, or Peter Parker, as Spider-Man or Bruce Wayne as, as Batman or, or on and on and on. The backstories are so fascinating and they set up who they set up the story, they set up the arc. And so what do y'all love about super? Look, first of all, what, who's your favorite superhero and why is it not Batman? Okay. This is easy. Um, uh, Superman. <laughs> Superman. Superman. Yes. I know. So, Superman. Yes. That, yes. That is I such thought a, I knew you. That Shut is up. such a 1970s um, answer. <laughs> Listen, he's the man and you, you know, they have to Some invent ways super- to, to try to kill him. And then, you know, um, he's indestructible. He's got the, but he's got this, he's got a great backstory. That's true. Adopted. That's true. Yes. From a different planet. Yes. You know, his, yeah, his father's from only a different son. Planet. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. goodness. So, sent to save humankind. I mean, oh, he, he does. I see the trend Ooh, here. See? There's a little, yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. a little JC in there. So he, he has every power that we all want. Don't don't hate. Don't hate. No, I, I don't hate. Superman's pretty is pretty uh, yeah, spectacular. He's, he's super great, and the, yes. and that's the problem is because uh, what kind of story can you make about a guy who can do everything? Well, nowadays yeah. we want we want our heroes to be flawed. Nowadays, no. I love the I love the new uh, Avengers stuff that's come out recently. My favorite being the the newest incarnation of Spider Man on film is my favorite. Uh, what's the what's the guy's name again? Not Peter Parker, the actor. Oh, uh, oh gosh, what is his name? Um, is this the first part we're going to have to cut out of our very first no, no. podcast? Well, wait, we're uh, not. So uh, it's fantastic. So here's what I love about it. It's it's that it, okay. So they have some innate abilities, but they're also like relying on intellect and ingenuity, and they can create. They can be a part of a good story because they're not invincible, and yes. I love that stuff. Yeah, Tom Holland. Uh, Tom Holland. There it is. Googled. He pulled that from his own brain. <laughs> Thank they you, Alan. Google on this podcast. Our, our assistant producer, Alan Kaysen, here pulling up the answers <laughs> for us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Thank Alan. you. <laughs> yeah, so mine is actually Batman. And some would argue that Batman is not a superhero because he doesn't have superpowers. There's His superpower, that. well, here's the deal. 
two things. His superpower is, first of all, he's extremely wealthy. And he is extremely like, like his ingenuity is his, his, his superpower. And I love the fact, as what Jim was saying, uh, he's not invincible. He's a man. He's been broken. I mean, Bane broke the bat. So we know that he's invincible, and yet he still rises above the challenge. And of all the superheroes in superhero lore, who is it that Superman trusted to keep kryptonite just in case he goes crazy? Y'all know that story, right? You know the story. I think you might be a little bit deeper in the lore than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Superman said to Batman, and they're enemies. You know, they're not enemies, but they don't like each other. Well, there is a movie or a comic called Batman versus Superman, so they've got to be enemies. But but Superman came to Batman and said, if I go crazy, use this against me. And so um, I, I love that. I love the fact that Batman, Bruce Wayne, um, is a trusted in the in the Justice League. He's trusted like that. So anyway, uh, Batman is my my guess, with a close second being Spider Man. Uh, just you know, the, you the, the the nerdy teenager getting bit by a radioactive spider. That that that's that's all about it right there. It could really happen. That's right. Anyway, so but I love superhero movies because of the way they set up the story and any good superhero movie book, TV show, whatever it is, if it's successful, it's because it's set the arc. It's, it's got a good backstory, a good foundation to set that story arc. And so there's a story we're telling in this podcast, Podakesis. There's a story we're telling, and it's the story of Christian belief, uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what, and what it means to believe in important, important things. So one of the things that is interesting is Christianity in the U.S. and in the West, in the Western world, is a declining religion. Um, a large portion of that is because of declining birth rates and whatnot within Western, what the Western world. But a big portion of that is because the church has lost its influence. It's lost its power. It's lost its standing in society. I, I, I don't know. What do y'all think? Y'all, uh, Alan, you grew up in the church. Jim and I kind of came into it later in life. But Alan, what do you think? Why, as one who grew up in the church, what is it that the church is losing now? Well, no pressure. I think I think one issue is how intertwined the church has become with politics and how we've lost some of our our weight because we've kind of gone in bed with uh, different political parties. And so those outside the church don't view us as separate. They view us as, you know, if you're a Republican, you're this or if you're, you know, if you're a Christian, you're this or if you're a Democrat, you're this. And so I think that's part of the problem. It's not all the problem, but it's, it's part of it. And one of the things that that really speaks to is in an absence of uh, formate, Christian formation, to be able to say, this is who we are as believers in Christ, politics becomes a way to fill the vacuum. Like if we have this, uh, this kind of wow. sense that we're a Christian, um, and it's not just politics, it could be anything that, that is, we would equate anything that is generally feels good or is generally good with God-like things. So where there's an absence of clarity and what it means to be a Christian, we've latched on to something. So I think there's a yearning within people. Um, and I wonder if the church in America, at least, has lost a little bit of the ability to be super clear about who we are and what we're about. Gosh, I love that. I've never thought of that. The, 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 the loss of clarity about who we are as Christians 
that politics moves into that vacuum. Yeah, it just becomes the, it becomes a vacuum. You know, yeah. the other thing that's it's interesting, and, and Alan, I know you're super passionate about this. It's not just that we want to have a certain standing in the world, but we've got a mission and um, really to help people become disciples of Jesus Christ. And to be able to really keep that alive requires a strong, strong, strong faithfulness. Well, so one of the things that's interesting about when you look at the Christianity in the world, so you look at Christianity in Africa or in Korea or in China or in India, or in these places where the church is persecuted a lot, the church is growing. And it's almost like where it doesn't have power, it grows more. Or where it taps into the power of God, it continues to grow, like in South Korea. Mm. There is great growth there, but they, that's, a, that's a country that is known for its prayer life. Now, what's interesting about South Korea, too, though, is they were probably about 10 to 15 years behind the Western world. And there is a generation, what they call a lost generation, coming up um, within their Christian circles that they're, they're just now starting to experience, that we've been experiencing for probably two decades, if not longer in the US. Well, I don't want to um, hit back. I want to hit back on um, the whole political side of things is that I think we've become more, uh, the church has become more about what we're against rather than what we're for. And so, and, which is, gets into the political aspect of, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to stand on this side of, of the political spectrum, political spectrum, because you have to stand against something. Right. And so the church, we don't know what we're for. We don't know what we're what we believe. We we believe we're against this, but w- but what are we for? I mean, I think people want to know what we are for. Some way we've got to we've got to get that back. We've got to we got to we got to get back to right belief. I, I gosh, I, I love that, and that that is absolutely true. If you, I, I wondered if you ask just the normal person down on the road, you know, what what do Christians believe? If the answer they would give would be, well, I know that they're against this or they're against that. Not that, oh, they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead three days later. And probably because Christians don't understand or know how to articulate that themselves. It's part of that. We haven't haven't told them. That's right. And so uh, generations of, of kind of waning ability to teach that kind of comes into, so now it's, now it's kind of our job. Uh, not because it's our job, but because it's our calling. Um, all of us, not just the three of us here to say, all right, how can we clearly help people understand? And so that's why I think I'm thinking back on what Alan mentioned about uh, what we're for and what we're against and what's right and what we stand against. That's why when we talk about the idea of orthodoxy, meaning right belief, it feels so internally challenging. And I bet there's somebody listening that's going to feel challenged, kind of like maybe it rubs against them to hear the term right belief, because we're so used to the right belief standing against the wrong belief, or my right belief makes your belief wrong. So you join me. And so you get into these really, especially in a society that's got a lot of postmodern feel to it, where most truths are relative. I, that's going to be one of the neat things to explore is what does right belief mean in a way that we can invite everybody to be a part of? Because uh, we're definitely not trying to stand against anything, but to be able to articulate why right belief actually matters and where it comes from, because it doesn't come from me. Well, I think that's what's important as we get going is to, you know, um, that 
as we go through these questions that we're going to answer uh, during the, these episodes is that the truth that we're going to glean from is the scriptures that, right. that that's where, that's where our truth comes from. And, and again, we're not going to be saying anything against anything else. We're just going to be saying what, what the scriptures, what, what, what God's word tells us right. to have their, have their, have their scripture with them and, and yeah, to, open your Bible, open, open yeah, it up absolutely. and uh, test us. Um, yes, look, at, look at the scriptures that we're going to be uh, referencing and bringing up. And right. Because I think it is important to know that there is, believe it or not, there's universal truth. Right. <laughs> there's, uh, I mean, um, and it's, uh, we believe it's right. in God's word. So one of the things J- Jim keeps bringing up is this idea of post-modernity. Uh, I, one, of my, one of my professors in seminary would like to always say that uh, we are living in a post-postmodern world. We're living in the wake of post-modernity. And kind of just in layman's terms, uh, for those who are listening who don't know what postmodernism is, is what? <laughs> it's the idea of questioning the institutions and the, the framework of life um, that were so prevalent in the world, let's say in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. It's that um, even going back to the late 1800s, there in those that time period, everything was the, the institutions, politics, religion was set up as a pillar of society. And postmodernity came in and started questioning those pillars, and in doing so, would deconstruct. In fact, it's called that deconstruct, uh, deconstructing. I can't even say the word deconstruction. We'll go with that. And it would start chipping away at those pillars. The problem is, I think, is that the more those pillars got chipped away in looking for what is true on an individual basis and not so much in a societal basis or a universal basis, is that now we've got foundations and buildings and whole systems crumbling before us. And so in a post postmodern world, we, we come in and we see, we don't see answers that would set us free. What we see are crumbling ruins and there are no answers to it. And so now we've got generations, the, the generation Y and Z and the millennials and whatever who are looking, they're not looking at a free society. They're not looking at a free people. They're looking at ruins that look like something at the Parthenon or looking like something at the Holy Land or whatever. It's all chipped away and it's fallen apart. And they're asking, okay, so where are the answers? And perhaps, in my opinion, the answers have always been there. The, the, the truth has always been there. And this, this whole podcast, this podachesis that we're going through here is a, is a look back to a, um, to a message that's 2,000 years old. And that's been there for so long. So the vehicle that we're going to do this is uh, something called catechism. Cat a what? <laughs> catechism. It's the only cat that I like, um, uh, actually. <laughs> can we get sound effects? Yes, we can. We'll just put that in there. Um, <clears throat> catechism. Catechism is a word. It means it, it comes from the word that means to hear or hearers or learners. And the idea of catechism is an ancient, ancient tradition. Some of you hearing this might know this word if you come from a Roman Catholic background or maybe even an Episcopalian or some sort of high church background. You may have heard this before, but uh, catechism, all it is, is a, 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 a set way of teaching people who are new to the faith what the foundations of that faith is so that they would know you know, who they are as Christians. Um, usually um, in the ancient world, what would happen in ancient Christianity, what would happen is you would have someone who would come to faith in Christ. They would go through a process that was about a year to three years long, a 
education, of learning what it meant to be a Christian. Uh, the reason it took so long, because there was persecution taking, all, uh, taking place, and there was also sometimes becoming a Christian required them to change jobs. In the fourth and fifth century, there was this understanding that you couldn't be a soldier in the Roman army to be a, a Christian. And so people would be leaving jobs and whatnot. And then when they would go through this instruction on Easter Sunday morning, they would be baptized and they would be welcomed into the community of faith. And so uh, we're going to be looking at catechesis, where podechesis comes from, is a way of teaching the faith. And so this whole podcast project that we're doing here is a way of examining some of these important questions of the faith. Um, and uh, we've got a specific way we're going to do that. I'll talk about, we'll talk about in just a, a minute. But I do want to say this, that uh, the there is scriptural, um, there's scriptural evidence to teaching and teaching well. Jim said this, and he kept bringing it up over again. Have, have we stopped teaching? Have we stopped teaching? Have we stopped teaching? And I think perhaps some of the problems in the church today are not that we're not doing the right strategies. It's that we have forgotten how to do what we were commanded to do. Two scripture verses I want to bring up are Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, that's the famous prayer, probably, as one uh, theologians put it, uh, probably the most prayed prayer in all of history. Absolutely. The Shema. The Shema. And the word Shema, Alan, can you tell us what, and you remember from your Hebrew class what Shema means? Here. Oh, here. Yes, oh, yes there, there, there's a, that was Jim playing Thanks, Jim. Alan. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shema means to hear, or means hear, and it comes from the first word of that prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That sounds familiar to us. This is in the Old Testament. But for those of you, you might say, gosh, didn't Jesus say something like that? Um, I think he did, actually. In fact, he did. He said, um, uh, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, it's to love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he took and added something from Leviticus 17 that said, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. But in the Shema, in the middle of this prayer, there's this very quick passage that says, and you are to impress upon your children. Uh, that word impress means to teach. It means to push on or put on to your children these things. And it's the law. It's the law of God, the 613 laws of God that were given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Um, so let me ask you guys a question. Yeah. How many of y'all been through confirmation? Yeah. Oh, no, I never went through confirmation. I, I, never I, went through confirmation. Confirmation. I go through confirmation. I didn't go you didn't go through confirmation? Mm -mm, mm -mm. Mm -mm. Okay, so I'm, I'm the only one here who's gone through confirmation. For those of you that aren't aware, in the Methodist Church, we have um, confirmation, which is a, well, it's a form of catechism yeah. um, for, for kids, yeah. our, you know, fifth and sixth graders as they're coming of age. And it's an opportunity for us to impress on our children the right belief of the scriptures and of, of the church. And so, uh, but all the you two guys have taught confirmation, right? Yeah, yeah. I know Brett yes. is, has, and I know Jim has. So, anyways, just throwing that out there. Well, and that's right. And um, in fact, just kind of full disclosure, uh, one of the things that pushed me to do to do this podcast and invite Jim and Alan along for the ride was that I'm I'm in the middle of writing a dissertation for a uh, D-Men or dis, the Doctorate of Ministry program in which my thesis is basically coming up with a catechism or um, a confirmation class for adults who come into the church um, either through transfer of membership or through uh, profession of faith, mainly through profession of faith, teaching upon them 
um, these things that are important about the Christian faith as they make these decisions. And then we jump ahead just real quick. And there are a lot of verses in the Old Testament, New Testament about teaching, but uh, the main one is what we call the Great Commission. Jesus, just before he ascends into heaven, it's in Matthew 28, and he lays out basically this uh, mission for the disciples to go. And he goes, go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make, go make disciples. Is this this kind of thing? Go make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and teaching them to obey. Now we in kind of more evangelical circles, and I and and I would count myself in that, and we'll talk about that label later. Um, Labels, <laughs> but they um, matter. We. we uh, <laughs> We focus so much on getting the gospel out, and that's important work. But one of the things we tend to neglect is the nurturing part. Once the gospel is received, what do you do to teach? And we sometimes forget the teaching commission, the teaching mission of that commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28. Yeah, I love, um, uh, I don't know who many of you follow Seedbed and J.D. Walt, but I think we focus on the baptized, and he would call that the first half of the gospel. Right, teaching, right. teaching, and really growing as a disciple, which is what we're talking about. Right, is the second half of the gospel, and a lot of the a lot of folks in the church today, I think, are we're stuck in the first half of the gospel, and we're still on milk, so to speak. Right, and uh, this is about teaching and and maturing and getting us to the second half of the gospel. Yes, and one of the things that can happen if we're not clear about what we teach and how we go about doing it. There's so much Christian information out there from all kinds of different sources, some good, some make your head spin, that people get a a mosaic or a, a hodgepodge Christianity formed, and it's it's not necessarily consistent. It's not necessarily helpful for them. It doesn't create a, a way of life in which they can really follow through with the great purposes that God has for them. So right. it's important for us to have the discussions about what what is it to be a Christian, mm-hmm. as well as how then do we help people know that. Right. Well, and and part of the issue with uh, the part of the uh, thing I was thinking about with this podcast, with Potokesis, is that this can be a tool. This can be a tool. This discussion, a conversation can be a tool to teach people what's important and how to have a conversation, how to have a conversation about these important things with people who are new to the faith. Um, and maybe these are conversations that are new to you um, as well as our, as the listener. So teaching is so important. And I didn't realize how much I needed to be taught until I got to seminary. I was in seminary and um, I was at a world-class seminary and here I am, I'm sitting in an, um, uh, I'm kind of floundering, floundering in what I want to do with my life. I knew I was called into ministry. I knew I wanted to preach the gospel, but there's so much to that, uh, what kind of track you want to take in doing that and how you want to go. And I'm, I'm sitting in a class with this very eclectic person and uh, she started just kind of going through um, the nature of education, of Christian education. And my, my brain just started firing up and I got excited about something. I had no clue that I got excited. I could get excited about. And the, the idea of teaching someone the basics of the faith and what it means to be a Christian. 
and in a way, so so Jim and Al and I were Methodists, but we we kind of broadly speaking were, were Wesleyans, and which means we we follow the teachings and direction and the leadings of um, a priest, an Anglican priest from the 1700s named John Wesley. Through John Wesley, there was this uh, John and Charles and his their followers. Um, there was a, a revival in England that spilled over into the United States as part of one of the Great Awakenings called the Wesleyan Revival, and it was just a powerful, powerful movement. And Wesley taught uh, a doctrine called entire sanctification. And this was the idea that we could be made holy, perfect um, in this life. What? We'll talk more about that later. Let me just put that out there. But um, Ooh, we lost half of our audience. <laughs> yeah. like, what? what? I'm just for. I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. By the way, Wesley would not like that. <laughs> so anyway, but the idea of entire sanctification only makes sense in two ways. One, that it's God's grace. We can't do it on our own. And two, that we're being taught. That we're being taught. And so that's why the teaching ministry of the church, I think, is so important. And I, I don't think the church, I mean, I, I like strategies. I do. I like the five steps to reach millennials and four steps to get, you know, improve your giving. I think those are important things. Make sure you don't have blind spots. But I think the foundation is already there and has been there for 2,000 years to be able to teach people what it means to be a Christian. And I think we've lost that. Mm. that folks you know that that reminds me and and y'all are alan i know you're better at sports than i am um yes. i was watching recently the, yeah and you know all about but <laughs> i was watching recently one of the one of the pro nba players um wasn't able to uh keep up his game and practice and so talked about this whole situation where he set up a, a home a home court and what what is he doing he's shooting the ball shooting the ball shooting the ball shooting the ball how does the great get great He's drilling. He, even that person yeah. is, is drilling and knowing and diving into uh, the basic foundation parts. And the same thing is true as we start talking about the gospel. The, there's nothing boring about the basics of the gospel. There's not. Uh, nothing boring about the basics of God. And, and the folks who can root deeply, when, when we can help people root deeply in that, Mm-hmm. That's when that's when the the greatness of God really can shine through a person's life, right? Um, and so to really help people to know, uh, not just how they can feel better, uh, not just how they can enjoy life more, but really who is God and what who are we and how do we relate and all of the things that come in catechism. That's right, right. And I'm just and catechesis. I just think it's amazing that Jim was the first one to come with a sports analogy. <laughs> I mean, that's your fault, Alan. Honestly, it, it is. You're rubbing off to everybody you're out there. To our, uh, to all of our Steph one Curry. viewers out Steph there. Steph Curry. Um, I apologize. And I did that while wearing a homemade Star Wars T-shirt. He sure did. He sure yes. did. Yes, his uh, his uh, his favorite football team are the Tatooines. That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, second are the Ewoks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> So um, we, the way the, the, the vehicle we're going to do this or what we're going to use to kind of lead this discussion through these uh, s- several and several and several uh, podcast episodes is um, a writing or a, a, a book that John Wesley included in his library um, that he had available for his clergy. This was a theological library that he made available for his clergy to train them. And it was his revision of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So 
I just lost about half of y'all saying those words. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me tell you just a little bit about that. Um, in, uh, in the 1600s in England, there was all kinds of strife and war and everything going on. And a lot of the, a lot of the reason for that strife going on in England was over religion. It was Protestants versus Catholics, and um, it was uh, Scotland versus England, and it was just all kinds of stuff going on there. Well, in this in 1646 and 1647, um, the Westminster Assembly uh, got together, and um, these uh, Scottish theologians came together, and they put together a uh, a teaching method of question and answer. They would ask a question, what is the chief end of man? And then there would be this answer with scriptural proofs to it. And so they put this together as a way of teaching the basics of the Christian faith, um, getting back to the the, the very foundation of the faith. Um, They had seen, these were Puritans. Uh, This is what during a Puritan movement in England and in Scotland. And so what they really wanted to do was was to get away from the high church traditions and to look at the foundations um, themselves, um, bringing greater conformity, if you will, to to uh, the belief system. Some hundred years later, uh, John Wesley would take the Westminster Catechism, which was from a Reformed tradition, a Calvinist tradition, and he would take it and he would revise it, basically scratching out all the Calvinist doctrines of election and whatnot. Oh, well, we'll have to get into that too. By the way, <laughs> we are Wesleyan Arminians in our theology, but we will talk about these issues that are Calvinistic and kind of our take on it and what's going on there, because the truth of the matter is, and this is for people who know a little bit about Christian theology, the difference between Calvinist and, and Wesleyans. John Calvin and John Wesley were probably closer together than a Calvinist and a Wesleyan today are. Oh, yes. And, um, and so by looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the revised edition of it that Wesley put out there, we get to see um, not only what he struck through, but we get to talk about those and why did he strike through them? Should he have struck through them? Or is there any truth to to these decrees and, and whatnot that are, is laid out there? So yeah, there's that. That's what we're going to be looking at, the, Westmin- the revised Westminster Shorter Catechism that Wesley put as in his library. By the way, Wesley thought this was important because he included it in the library for his preachers. A little bit about John Wesley. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time, you know, boring you with the details of him, but he's a fascinating character. Show notes. Show notes, exactly right. So go, you you can look at the show notes and go to the Wikipedia page. Yes, I did say that. Oh um, no! Oh no! Um, this you're not writing a paper, so you go to Wikipedia. It'll be fine. Um, but uh, Wesley was um, he's a unique individual because in the 1700s he was an Anglican priest who followed in the footsteps of his of his daddy Samuel. Um, he was raised and taught by his mom. You know, those preacher's kids. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things about Wesley that really pushed him to really understand the teaching ministry of the church was his mom, Susanna, who she taught all, I think, 18 or something like that of their kids. Like they had. It was a litter. There was a mess. They had almost as many kids as Alan does. <laughs> That's exact. Almost, almost. And <laughs> we have the same amount of kids, Jim. <laughs> so, um, Don't ruin my joke. But, but Wesley was um, early in his ministry was a bit of a failure. And I'd say a bit, he was a failure. He went as a missionary to Georgia, only stayed 18 months, came back, a failure, failure at love, failure at everything. And then he had this famous heartwarming experience at Aldersgate on May 24th, 1738. And he, and he, 
out of that, this love for God and love for people was birthed. And it, it, this Wesleyan revival took place that cha- literally changed the world. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple of things. Um, Sunday school, John Wesley. Small he, groups? Small groups, yeah. John Wesley. Abolition of slavery in England, John Wesley. Um, feeding the poor um, at the at feeding the poor and the hungry in England. That was John. The Church of England wasn't doing that. That was John Wesley who started those ministries. John the Man Wesley. Now he wasn't perfect. He was a horrible husband to his wife. Didn't even go to her <laughs> funeral when she died. Um, <laughs> he wasn't. Let's a be perfect. honest, people. Yeah, that's true. But. He was sold out for Jesus, and he believed. Um, oh, and another thing about him, too, was he was rooted in ancient Christianity, or what he called primitive Christianity. And so um, it is important, and we as Wesleyans, it's important to get to know who John Wesley is. And I think it's important to look at what he found to be important, that he wanted to train his preachers um, in. Um, and so uh, we're going to be looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism Revised Edition by John Wesley. You can find that book um, on seedbed.com. Um, you can just put in John Wesley's revision of the Westminster Catechism and, and we'll provide a link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah we, we, could we'll, put a link. we could put a link in the show notes. Show notes. <laughs> show enough. Show notes. <laughs> what so, I love about it is one, it says shorter, but there are 107 questions. <laughs> uh, no, but what I do love about it is uh, it's uh, it's yes. set in question and answer format, relatively concise. I guess they're meant to be memorized. They're meant so, to memorize. but it gives us a chance to really just kind of dig into some small pockets. Um, right. Uh, references. And that kind of dialogue, right. uh, it'd be great for people to go along. And what I find is, uh, as I'm spending time in in uh, studying and looking over this, is these pieces stick in my brain, and it really helps kind of lodge it in. So it's going to be a fun tool to dig into together and get a little bit of the dialogue with the Wesley Arminian and Reformed companies that yes. make up a lot of American Christianity, yeah. um, but also to dig into some basics. I'm super well, excited about I think about what's it. great about the document is that it, it, it is kept... Oh, what Wesley has stricken through, strike through, yeah. Stri- yeah. struck through, struck. I don't know, struck. And uh, yeah, I just murdered the English language there. That's but okay. um, you're from Matter. Yes. <laughs> but I think it's great because it gives us, uh, gives, it gives us insight into Arminianism and what Wesley believed and not jive with Calvinism right. and Reformed theology. And yeah. so rather than just taking it out, it, it's there for us to see. Um, and so it's going to be a great conversation. Right. And, and the, there's an in, interesting, the, the notes on the questions are written about a hundred years ago or so by um, George McDonald. Is that right? Or um, is that, is that right? I don't have my book in front of me. Um, so I'm showing some um, ignorance there. The first forward in the book, Jim is flipping through the book now. I think James it's George McDonald. James, James McDonald. McDonald. You were George so, McDonald. You were so close. Is another like theologian, I think, from sure. Old, but uh, James uh, McDonald, um, he he had written about not this to kind be of, confused with old, old McDonald. <laughs> or Ronald. He would be He old had McDonald. a farm. He or did. Ronald. Or Ronald McDonald. We're cutting this. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you think. Anyway, so oh. so um, uh, so James McDonald he he adds some notes from nineteen like oh six or something like that that is included in the back of the book that we'll be also looking at uh, looking at this from more of an ecumenical uh, standpoint as well. So uh, friends, that that is that is what we're doing. We believe teaching is important, and we believe that we believe that belief truly does matter. What we believe it influences 
how we live our lives. I was, when I was in college, I got a, a my Bachelor of Arts is in philosophy. And I went to a Valdosta State, so that's a secular uh, liberal arts college. And um, we, I always enjoyed reading um, the classic philosophers, the ancient philosophers like Socrates and Aristotle and whatnot. But the ones that really got me were the early modernists, uh, people like Rene Descartes, famously, I think, therefore I am. And uh, we would get into these discussions about, uh, you know, what is real, what is not real. Um, can I, if I really believe that a wall was not really there, could I walk through it? That kind of stuff. And the way we would hear stories of philosophers who would sit there and like break their noses because they tried to live out this philosophy of life of if it's, if I don't believe it's there, it's not there. So I can walk right through it. So don't ever tell me that belief doesn't matter because it can, Mm -hmm. it can mess you up. (laughs) It can mess you up. And on the other end, it can really lead you into the fullness of, I think, all that God has in store That's for right. creation. That's exactly Which is what I found in my life, yeah, being too. rescued from abandonment and finding home in God's grace. Yeah, um, So yeah. the same thing. That's exactly right. Good word. So uh, preach. Back to comic books. Y'all remember, you know, that, that famous calling from the Avengers? Avengers Assemble. Well, we've been called. The story has been cast, and we have the the Avengers have been called to assemble and to get this thing done. How nerdy am I? Very. It's super nerdy, and I love it. So, a little teaser for the next time we get together, episode two, we'll actually be looking at question number one, and that is, what is the chief end of man? I'm sorry for the uh, gender exclusive language there, but this is from the 1600s, and I want to keep it the same. But it's, what is the uh, chief end of man, or what is the chief end of humanity? We will be answering that question next time on Potokesis. 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 Y'all have a good one.